This is They Create Worlds, episode 42, Laser Crave. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will delve into a subject we have only touched on briefly before. Movies as video games. Specifically, movies as video games on a laser disc. Because the future is cool with more lasers. Lasers. Nothing like that light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, huh? Yeah. Hope I got that acronym right. Otherwise, I'll look very silly. We could look it up. We could, but that takes all the fun out of it. It could. <laughs> In a period of time when the best graphics you could achieve, even on a high-end arcade cabinet with all the RAM that you could eat, at least in 1982 terms, you still had graphics that were fairly primitive. When Donkey Kong is your height of graphical sophistication or Pac-Man is your height of graphical sophistication, to go from that to seeing literally a cartoon on a monitor that you can play was just an absolutely stunning leap forward that had everybody so excited. But, of course, as we'll explore in this episode, never really quite pans out. But they looked so cool and were so, so hard. That's true. They were hard, but of course, a lot of times their difficulty was not down to actual gameplay difficulty, as in a shooting game, a traditional shooting game, or a Donkey Kong-style game. They were mostly hard because you had a series of choices, and you had to make the correct choice. And if you didn't, you died. And so you had a lot of different choices, but then once you got through the whole thing, then there was really nothing else to do. You've had all the patterns memorized. Now, that's just one model of the Laserdisc game. As we'll see as we do this episode, there were a couple of different ways of using the Laserdisc. It wasn't all just these kind of pattern memorization things, but that was certainly a big part of it. It wasn't all the death trap of Dragon's Lair. Mm-hmm. All right, then. To start us off, what is the first game? So before discussing the first Laserdisc game, it probably would be helpful to put the Laserdisc technology itself into context. The Laserdisc was something that was invented in its most primitive form in 1958. That's pretty long ago. You usually think of Laserdiscs as in the 90s with music and then DVDs. If you're really old school, you remember the giant, huge discs, bigger than a record, that had movies on them that you had to get up and flip, and then flip again, and then put in the next disc, and then flip, and then your two-hour movie was done. Yes. <laughs> now, the basic idea of the Laserdisc was that you actually etched this disc. You put these little pits in the disc, and these can be read as data by a laser. Therefore, you have a digital format, unlike your film or your cassette tape or something like that. Or a record. Or a record. It's a 
digital method of reading information. And the benefits for doing that are, first of all, it's random access. You can seek out information at any point along the disk rather than having to play it serially. The other thing, of course, is that you have, since it's data, you have a consistent quality to the file that is often more high quality than an analog format like a record. You get rid of all of those pops and hisses and other craziness where you have a clearer picture quality if what you're talking about is film. So the first guy to come up with this kind of scheme of encoding data was a guy named Dr. David Gregg, uh, who was working at a small electronics company in California. Around the same time, there was another guy named James Russell that did the very same thing. So this was percolating a little bit amongst the technology people. MCA ended up buying Gregg's work. Philips in the Netherlands was doing similar kind of research. And finally, MCA were the company that released the first player format. They called it DiscoVision, but it was a laser disc. They were just being all fancy because it's the disco era, and I guess it's a disc is shiny like a disco ball or something would be my guess. Lots of colors, lasers, girls, the machismo. Uh, yeah, all of that on one gigantic disc. Because, of course, these are not the compact discs that we're familiar with today that we're talking about. These are very large discs, probably even larger than most records. This is big technology. Pioneer, the Japanese company then, after MCA, was the first one that put out a laser disc player that was actually more widely manufactured and widely bought. But when I say widely bought, you're talking about thousands of people buying Laserdisc players. They're very expensive. As you mentioned earlier, they only hold 30 minutes of data per side, so you're flipping constantly if you're watching a movie on them. They're very fragile, much more fragile than the CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays we have today, and much easier to damage just because they're so big that it's kind of hard to manipulate them when you're taking them in and out of their sleeves or sticking them in the Laserdisc player. This was a technology that just wasn't going to do well. It was very high fidelity. It had a higher fidelity than your VHS or beta tape of the time. But you're paying a lot more. You're probably going to damage it. And of course, it's not a writable media. You can't even record on them. So video cassettes bury Laserdiscs in the marketplace. So even though the Laserdisc was very unwieldy, and wasn't that good in its way for movies. It was understood pretty quickly by a few different people that this could be a very interesting medium for games because it did have pretty instant access compared to certainly a cassette tape and even a floppy disk. There obviously is a period of time where you have to wait if you're doing something non-sequential and it's seeking out different parts of the disk. But it's actually pretty fast when you compare it to something like a floppy disk where you're trying to read those uh, data fields with those disk heads. So there were a few people that were kind of like, this could be a good idea. The very first known Laserdisc game, and this is not in the arcades, but it was a type-in game done in 1977 by a guy named David Lubar, who later became a professional video game designer. At this point, 
he was more of a hobbyist. He did a game in creative computing that was a type-in. You had to type in yourself, but it used some film footage and was meant to be hooked up to a Laserdisc player to take advantage of that film footage. There were a few training types of things or little kid interactive kinds of things that came out in the early 80s. Nothing particularly outstanding or interesting. But the idea was starting to percolate that the Laserdisc is something you can actually use to create some kind of interactive experience, whatever that may be. The very first Laserdisc game that was more of an arcade setup, it's hard to even call it a coin-operated amusement game. It's almost more a gambling device. It's often not mentioned as the first Laserdisc video game just because it doesn't have that much similarity with video games, but it's something called Quarter Horse. Quarter Horse was basically just a horse betting game. Now, it was an amusement-only game, he says while flashing quotes up to Jeff, <laughs> in the sense that it did not take your money for gambling. You had a pool of money tracked by the machine, but there's no actual money changing hands. And you could bet on a horse race. And once everyone placed their bets, it would show that horse race. It had a way of mixing and matching various race elements from various video footage on the laser disc and splicing them together to create a race. I mean, obviously, the every horse has a chance to win every race. It's not rigged in the sense that everyone bets on their horses, but they only did videos of three different horses winning. So you had a variety of different races. They got like 50 plus different races in there with every horse having a chance to win. And that gave it some variety. So you would place your bets, watch the race, and then win or lose. Now, of course, this is meant to be a gambling game. It cannot collect your money for legal reasons. But you know the only purpose for something like that to exist is so that you can square up your virtual wins and losses with actual cash <laughs> with the owner or whatever when it's all done. I'm sure that was used as a gambling game, but technically it was an amusement game. For legal purposes, we'll call it that. That's right. So there's no interactivity to it, and there's no real gameplay elements to it. You just bet and then you watch. It's just like a regular horse race in that regard. It's not like one of those horse race games you might play at an arcade where you sit down at a table with a bunch of other people and you keep throwing a ball and trying to get it into certain slots and depending on which slot it got into your horse advances so many ticks right it doesn't have those kind of interactive elements to it but it is the first time that a coin operated style game used a laser disc player it's created by a guy named dale rodesh who had worked for a1 supply which is very famous for introducing video poker. They introduced the very first video poker machines, which is really what chased most arcade games out of bars. The bar used to be one of the staple locations for coin-operated amusements. After things like video poker came in and then bar-top consoles that offered not only poker but then other games as well, that pretty much chased the coin-operated game out of the bars. These days, you... We'll probably still see a Golden Tee Golf machine, because those are somehow everywhere. You may or may not see a couple of pinball machines. Depends really on the bar. 
Very rarely you might see something like a Ms. Pac-Man Galaga combo unit, 30th anniversary unit that was released in 2001. That's about it. You don't see video games in bars. But of course, video games, when they began in the arcade, I mean, we call them arcade games in the sense of the video arcade, but really they were bar games is what they were. There were very few arcades when the video games first came into being in 1972. So that's a bit of a tangent, but that's the link here between kind of these gambling games and video games is that they're sharing some of the same venues in this way. Dale Rodesh offered it to A1 Supply, and Cy Red, the owner, turned it down, so he ended up releasing it through another company, and that came out in 1981, and that was the very first laser disky kind of game. The first real laser disc video arcade game was a game developed by Sega called Astron Belt. I think we've briefly mentioned it before. I think so. This is a game that is a hybrid of traditional video game graphics and Laserdisc footage. Basically, it's a shooter, like your standard kind of shoot 'em up where your ship and your score and a few other on-screen elements are traditional arcade graphics, computer game graphics. But the stages that you fly through and the things that you're shooting at are all film footage. They're actually on the Laserdisc. They took their footage largely from a Japanese science fiction movie, but they also took a few other bits from other places, including a little bit from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And they strung all of these environments together and then have your ship flying through these environments streamed off the disc and shooting at things. It was pretty clunky in the way it worked. You'll see, of course, in the show notes, because we'll put up some footage of it. Since your enemies that you were fighting were kind of part of the laser disc, part of the background being streamed off the laser disc, you really couldn't tell, near as I can tell, I've never played the game, but just looking at footage of it, you couldn't really tell when you were really hitting things because it's being streamed. So there's no way to, like, quote-unquote, register a hit. The way it works is when you hit something, they sub in an explosion graphic that takes up the entire screen. It's just the entire screen fills with an explosion, and yay, you've hit something. But it doesn't really feel all that interactive as a result because it's all kind of existing in this streamed video footage rather than being individual ships rendered as sprites that you're blowing up and getting that immediate feedback of, I shot this thing and it exploded, I shot that thing, it exploded. It's just, you're randomly shooting around at these things being streamed and then suddenly there's a screen-filling explosion. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty clunky and it's pretty primitive. It debuts in 1982 at the MOA show, but at that time it's not nearly ready. It doesn't actually come out until maybe late 82, early, I think not until early 83. And it only comes out in Japan and Europe at first. That's where Sega first releases it. It doesn't come out until the United, in the United States until much later in 1983. So in the United States, Astron Belt is not the first Laserdisc game. Instead, the first Laserdisc game is also easily the most famous of the Laserdisc games, and that's Dragon's Lair. When we were kids, it was still available to be played in a local arcade, local amusement park. If you're really lucky, you can still find it today. Yeah, and if you're really, really, really lucky, it'll actually still be working. <laughs> that too. <laughs> this is really the game that defines the Laserdisc era, because Astron Belt 
is very clunky and doesn't really work all that well, and I don't think is ever that big of a hit. So it's one that's very easy to forget about today. It's really Dragon's Lair that starts the Laserdisc craze. Dragon's Lair is primarily the brainchild of an interesting individual named Rick Dyer. Rick Dyer was an absolute engineering genius and prodigy. He just instinctively knew how to build things and make them work, quite frankly. At the age of 16, he developed a talking cuckoo clock all by himself. He just built it for his own amusement that would give quotes from famous philosophers when it came out on the hour. So instead of, you know, going cuckoo, cuckoo, it would actually come out and give a quote. You know, he, he knew how to use speech technology and all of this stuff. I mean, he was just a real prodigy. He also rigged up his car radio so that it would ask his dates by name, because he'd program it before he went out on the date, that would ask his dates by name what their favorite music was. Nice. <laughs> uh-huh. Great way to, to pick up the girls, I guess. So, I mean, this is a guy that was just a genius. He didn't initially go to college, but he got a job at Hughes Electronics, defense contractor anyway, without a college degree, because he was that good. Just absolutely brilliant as an engineer. He does finally get his degree. He does finally go to school and get a degree from California Polytechnic University, at which point he is hired by Mattel. He had developed a horse racing, a mechanical kind of electromechanical kind of horse racing game, a toy by himself that he kind of showed to Mattel. And I, I believe Mattel never actually developed that, but they were impressed. This is a guy that clearly knew what he was doing. So he ends up coming into Mattel and working on some of their early handheld stuff, working a little bit on some of their early Intellivision stuff, before he really decides that he wants to go out on his own. He wants to found his own company now, and he certainly has the design and creative chops to be able to do that. So in 1979, he leaves Mattel and he founds his own company called Advanced Microcomputer Systems. It largely works as a contractor. A lot of the handheld and tabletop games that came out in the early 80s, including a lot of what a company called Intex released and some others, were actually created on a contract basis by this advanced microcomputer systems. Tabletop recreations of Pac-Man and Galaga and all of these arcade hits of the day, because that was kind of a big business. The handheld market kind of peaked in 1980 and then started to go on a decline but there was still a market for some of these tabletop recreations of very popular arcade games. And so that was the primary business that Advanced Microcomputer Systems was in. But on the side, he was trying to do something more. He really wanted to create an epic game. I'm not sure if he was originally thinking arcade or home or what he was thinking of, but he knew he wanted to create some kind of epic. He was a big Lord of the Rings fan. He liked that a lot. And he liked the text adventures on computers. He'd been exposed to adventure. He knew that kind of gameplay. But of course, those are text-based. He wanted something that was more graphically interesting, that had puzzles and whatnot to solve, and that had branching paths. He was also very impressed by the whole choose-your-own-adventure format, which at this point in time was a relatively new thing as well. So out of this idea that he wanted to combine adventure gaming with choose-your-own-adventure style branching paths and some kind of epic along the lines of a Lord of the Rings, 
is what led him to start experimenting with what eventually became the Dragon's Lair technology. But it did not start out that way. This started out as a crazy Rube Goldberg contraption because Rick Dyer's just crazy like that. And I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just he's very good with this technology. So he creates this thing on cash register receipt tape where he draws out all of these different scenes on different parts of this receipt tape and has a recall system in place where it's hooked into a mechanical device that can go to a specific spot on the tape when you push buttons to choose your path, and then it scrolls to the right part of the tape, and then there's a light behind it that shines on it and projects it onto a glass plate. So you have these individual scenes. Obviously, it's not in motion. It's not animation at this point. But you can go through all these different scenes, and it seeks them on this roll of cash register receipt paper. Wow. It's insane. I mean, it could never be commercialized. No, but it's a good proof of concept. Exactly. And then eventually he even got it a little more multimedia than that, because then he added a cassette tape to the whole get up as well. So then you could randomly seek a picture and you could also have the tape rewind or fast forward to the proper spot on the tape to add sound. So he's got this thing. There's no way that's ever going to be producible. I mean, that is just kind of crazy, but he's an ambitious guy and he's bound and determined to figure out a way to turn this vision into something that people can actually use. Eventually, he makes it a little more practical. He gets rid of the, uh, the cash register receipt tape and he goes to film, which at least is a little bit less of a fragile format and a little bit more of a conventional format. At this point, it's almost like the Ampex video file system that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney were working on before they founded Atari, when Ampex was trying to create a filing system where you would basically take photos of each of your individual documents, and then that would all be on a film strip, and then through use of a computer that it's hooked up to, you could seek within these documents and go to your document. It was meant to be an electronic filing system to replace paper filing at a time when you couldn't actually do it with a computer. So it was a kludge that was never really that popular, but it's kind of similar at this point to what Rick Dyer's doing with his system. And again, even with film as opposed to cash register tape, there's no way that this is ever going to work because even if, for the sake of argument, you could get this thing durable enough and interesting enough that you could put it on location. The seek times are huge because, of course, tape is a serial format. It's you not go random forward, access. Forward, back, forward, back. It takes way too long. I mean, no one's interest is going to be maintained for the period of time it takes to go here and then go here and then go there and then go there. Plus, it's imprecise. I mean, there's, there's markers or whatever. I don't know how the technology works. There's markers so that it knows when to start and stop. But with analog technology like this, that's never going to be perfect. It's not necessarily going to start at the exact right point where it's supposed to start. It might miss a little bit. So that's completely impractical. Analog technology is not going to work. We need something random access and we need something digital. Where have we heard that recently? 
laser discs. That's right. So eventually he discovers the laser disc. The laser disc has a very quick access time. There's still a small delay, but we're talking about a delay that's measured in milliseconds rather than in tens of seconds or even minutes. Worst case, your seek time is maybe a second. Exactly. And it's random access. So it can go straight to where you need, and it will start exactly at that point. It's not going to miss its mark. So clearly, the laser disc is the way to go. And this also will allow things to be nicely animated. I mean, you can really play video segments very well. I mean, he had switched to video cassette, which allowed some animation, since we're now on that format instead of cash register tape. But with film and the start and stop times and everything, that's still not very good. But with this, it's very easy to do some animation. So now he knows that he can do this great animated interactive epic that he wanted to do. And at this time, he had started working on creating this epic. It was a fantasy-themed game that he called Secrets of the Lost Woods. But it was very clear very quickly that his team didn't have the talent to do this kind of thing. He had engineers. They were all engineers. They needed animators. Because at this point, when we're talking Laserdisc, we're talking about actually having a cartoon. And so you need cartoonists to do that, and he doesn't have any of those. One day, he and his wife go and see a movie, an animated movie, just for entertainment, not because he's on the lookout for things, called The Secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wow, this is really well animated. These are the guys that I should get to do this. And he's probably expecting when the credits roll up to discover that this is a Walt Disney movie or something like that. But it's not. It's not Walt Disney. It's a company called Don Bluth Productions. Don Bluth is a fellow that in this period of time was more Disney than Disney. Don Bluth grew up in the middle of nowhere in Utah on a ranch or a farm. Every day he had to milk 20, his family's 24 cows. And to pass the time, he sang Disney songs to himself. He would ride into town on horseback. We're talking uh, late 30s, early 40s here, but in the middle of nowhere, Utah. We're still talking about not necessarily having an automobile. Well, in a farm, you want to really save those gasoline miles and car expenses, and you already have the horse. <laughs> sure. And so he would ride into town, you know, about four miles away or whatever it was, and they had one movie theater in town, and he would watch Disney movies there. He saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves when he was, I think, six years old, and it changed his life. He became obsessed with Disney and obsessed with animation. When he was in college, he secured an internship with the Walt Disney Company and served as an in-betweener on Sleeping Beauty. An in-betweener is the person that draws all those frames that have minute changes in position in order to have animation fully flow. So you have your best artists doing the key frames. These are the big movements. This is point A and point B and point C where they end up. And then you have your junior animators, your so-called in-betweeners, fill in all those little tiny tedious motions that get you from point A to point B. So he served as an in-betweener on Sleeping Beauty. And once he got out of college, he got a job with Disney. 
He was an animator on several of their movies. He was the lead animator on The Rescuers. He was also the lead animator on Pete's Dragon, which was a combination live-action animated film. He was probably the future of Walt Disney animation. The so-called Nine Old Men, which were Walt Disney's closest animation confidants, were actually really starting to get old now. They were called the Nine Old Men from the beginning, even when they were young. But now they're really starting to get old. And Walt Disney is dead. Walt Disney died in 1966. So there's kind of a need for a passing of the torch to a new generation of animators. The problem is animation, up to the perfection standards of Walt Disney, Walt Disney himself, now I'm not talking about the company, I'm talking about the man, is really, really expensive. I mean, really, really. And of course, costs only go up over time just as salaries get bigger and inflation and, and all of this kind of thing happens. Sleeping Beauty very nearly bankrupted Walt Disney Animation. I mean, it was so expensive. It's, it's so lush. I mean, if you look at it even still today, and don't put it in the show notes or because Disney will come after us because they're like that. But if you on your own go out and look at Sleeping Beauty today, and we encourage you to do that. <laughs> it's very lushly animated, but it was very expensive. Once Walt Disney died and his son-in-law, Ron Miller, took over the company, there was not the same level of impetus on spending all of that money on animation. Disney animation started getting cheap. I mean, you were having cheap animation getting pioneered on television. You had Hanna-Barbera doing their really cheap animation all over the place. It was possible to do animation at this point cheaply. It's just obviously there's a huge sacrifice in quality. If you look at a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoon from the 1940s that were, of course, originally made to show in movie theaters as shorts because there wasn't much television back then, and then look at a Hanna-Barbera cartoon of the 1960s, you would assume that the Looney Tunes must have been made later because they're more technologically advanced. But that's not true at all. They had that great animation quality back then, but it was expensive. So Hanna-Barbera pioneered a cheaper way of doing animation on television. So Ronald Miller didn't see any point in investing so much money and effort into those animated productions, because unlike Disney himself, who was an animator, Miller's not an animator. He doesn't care. He just wants the Walt Disney Company to make money. But of course, once they started sacrificing that quality, the quality of everything in Disney animation went downhill. Don Bluth was not happy about this at all. He did not like the fact that the quality of Walt Disney animation was really failing. So he got together with two fellow animators, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy, and they started making a short in his garage, in their spare time. It took them over four years, even though it was a short animation, because they were literally doing this in their spare time and on their own dime. But they wanted to preserve the classic Walt Disney animation techniques, and they wanted to carry those forward into the future because no one else at the company was doing so. Most of the nine old men were retired and gone, and the animators that replaced them just weren't of the same caliber or didn't have the same level of interest outside of Don Bluth himself. So they work four and a half years on this, and when they're all done, Disney rejects it. They don't want anything to do with it. So at this point, Don Bluth knows that 
he has no future at Disney. I mean, he could stay there. He could stay there and do the work that they were doing and all of that, but it was not up to his standard and in his mind, not up to Walt Disney's standard. And he did not see the point in that. So he leaves Disney, which was shocking. Nobody left Disney, not in animation. I mean, pretty much the pinnacle of achievement to get to Disney or any of the big studios, Warner Animation, Walt Disney. And he took over a dozen Disney animators with him. Mass defection. Gutted the animation department. They were working on the movie Fox and Hound at the time. And Disney had to delay the release of the movie for six months because they lost most of the animators working on the movie. So obviously Disney's not happy about this at all. I mean, it's not going to sink Disney because Disney's Disney. They hire more people. But they're very furious at Don Bluth for doing this. There's no love lost there. And so Don Bluth starts his own company that is dedicated to big, high-quality animation. Probably the most famous thing they ever did was An American Tale, uh, which is several years later. They also did the movie Anastasia in the 90s. But the very first movie that they did was The Secret of Nim. Critics loved it. It was very well animated. I loved it. Yeah, I, I liked it as a kid, too. It was a good movie. Creepy, glowy eyes, old rat man. Freaked me out, but... <laughs> but we like Nicodemus. <laughs> yes. It's Nicodemus. Yes, Nicodemus definitely freaked me out a bit with those glowy eyes, but... But he had Nim in him. If uh, <laughs> Jonathan was actually alive, he might have had glowing eyes. Yes. That makes it no less creepy, Jeff. No less creepy. Maybe this is why I like creepy. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it, too. I, I mean, I watched <laughs> it as a kid, too. It didn't, like, turn me off to it. Problem was... It came out right after a little movie called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Oh, the one where they had walkie-talkies everywhere. Yes, definitely walkie-talkies. So needless to say, every children's movie got steamrollered in 1982 by E.T. Yeah. E.T. was the biggest, baddest, bestest thing on the market in terms of children's movies. And it did not do well in the face of that onslaught. Secrets of Nim was pretty much a flop. When you're a small company like Don Bluth Productions is, you can't really afford a flop. That kind of hurts. They did scrape together enough backing to start on another movie. But then there was an animator's strike, a cartoonist strike. The union went on strike because... They were protesting the outsourcing of animation work to Asia, to cheaper animators in Asia, which is something that's still very much a thing today. Mm -hmm. So they, they couldn't work anymore. I mean, they're part of the union. They have to stop and join the picket line. So their investor pulls out because who knows when the strike's going to be resolved. They have no money because they didn't make anything on Secrets of Nim. They have no backers for another movie. These guys are in trouble. Yeah, just a bit. And then Rick Dyer calls. Hello. And he says, I'd like you to help me make this game. And you see, video games were so new. And animators were not doing video games. I mean, the animation in the early games was actually being done by the programmers. There weren't artists and animators working on it. The cartoonists or animators union, whatever the union was, they didn't have any clauses about video games in any of their contracts or bylaws or anything. So they could work on a video game during the animator strike. They were allowed to do that. Nice. 
So this was the perfect combination. I don't know that Don Bluth, Don Bluth was not a game player. He was not a gamer. Neither was Gary Goldman, his right-hand man, or any of these other guys. They would not necessarily have been interested in doing a game if it hadn't been for this perfect storm of circumstances where they were going bankrupt and they couldn't do any traditional animation work because of the strike. It took them a little bit to understand what was going on. They were shown the early Rube Goldberg-esque contraption. And that's kind of so kludgy and so different that I, I don't think they quite got it right away. But eventually they finally understood. It's like, okay, he wants us to make a cartoon. Because they're like, games? We don't do games. What? But they're like, no, okay, we're just making a cartoon. And then he's adding whatever gameplay elements to gamify it. He's like, yeah, we can make a cartoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they start to work on this game that becomes Dragon Slayer. It's a three-way partnership that's formed. You have Rick Dyer's company, you have Don Bluth Productions, and then you need someone to release it in the arcade. This is clearly going to be an arcade game. You don't have the technology at a reasonable price to be able to do this in the home. You got it on the Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, about that. Don't play the Nintendo version. <laughs> Not uh, unless you want to suffer. That's right. Plus, of course, even if for the sake of argument you stuck it on a laser disc for the home, well, nobody has Laserdisc players in the home. They've sold in the thousands. So you're not going to recoup your costs. So it clearly had to be an arcade game. So you needed a third partner to actually release the game. And that partner ended up being Cinematronics. Cinematronics had been a player in the industry since around 1975. They were the pioneers of vector graphics technology. They were the first company to release a video arcade game with vector graphics. They obviously did not invent the concept of vector graphics. They're just the ones that first melded a vector scan system with a video arcade game. Rick Dyer had done a game for them previously on a contract basis because, you know, his company was doing primarily these tabletop games, but they were doing various different entertainment projects for different companies. So they already knew each other. And Cinematronics was another company that was desperate for a hit. They had been fairly successful in the late 70s, but after the whole Space Invaders boom, they were overshadowed by a lot of the companies and games that had come out in the early 1980s. They were not nearly as successful in the early 1980s as they were in the late 1970s. And in fact, soon after making this deal, they would actually enter Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which doesn't mean that your company's over. A lot of people think that if you file for bankruptcy, that means you're going away. Chapter 11 bankruptcy just means that you cannot pay off your current debt holders, and you're going to structure that debt with the aid of court in such a way that you determine who gets what, and everybody doesn't necessarily get everything they're owed. And that's the bankruptcy process. Oftentimes, companies don't emerge from Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but Chapter 11 doesn't mean that you're actually out of business in that moment. It just means that you're in trouble and can't pay all your debts. That is contrasted with Chapter 7 bankruptcy, like what Acclaim Entertainment went to that we talked about in that episode, which is not only can we not pay our debts, but we have to sell off all of our existing assets in order to satisfy as much of our debt as we can. And so we are ceasing to be a company and we are selling our assets. That's Chapter 7. We're liquidating. Exactly. But they're not doing well. They need a hit too. And so they're willing to take a chance on this crazy new concept. And so the three partners form a company called Starcom that is actually the company that will 
produced this game, but it's really Rick Dyer doing the game design and his people. Don Bluth and his people doing the animation and Cinematronics doing the manufacturing and releasing of this arcade game that becomes Dragon's Lair. Don Bluth is still on the edge because he's doing this animation for free. He'll share in the Starcom profits once they start selling it, but he is not being paid to do the animation. There's no retainer fee. There's no upfront cost. That's right. So he's just scraping by, borrowing from friends and family just to keep the lights on. <laughs> in fact, at one point, his, I think it's his brother, brings them as a gag $50,000 in plastic shopping bags. He had gotten a check for $50,000 from an investment, and he thought it would be funny to cash the check and bring the money in shopping bags, which was all great until they tried to deposit their $50,000 in the bank and had a heck of a time convincing the bank that it wasn't drug money, because who shows up with $50,000 in shopping bags to deposit in a bank? Those people, obviously. <laughs> Animators. That's right. I mean, they got the money in eventually, but it's just, it's a cute little story, a cute little aside. So they managed to keep going in that way. Cinematronics, though, runs out of money because they enter Chapter 11. The project is saved because they managed to sell the rights, the console rights, to Coleco. Coleco pays $1 million up front and an additional $1 million if they complete it by a certain date. And that saves the project. Without making that Coleco deal, they would have never finished the game. But Coleco, again, recognized that this looked like it was going to be something special. Coleco had a business model of licensing hit arcade properties for release on the ColecoVision. That was their entire way of doing business. And so they saw that this was probably going to be a big deal because anyone that saw the, the work being done were just blown away by the technology. And there was talk, I think, for a time of even perhaps having a Laserdisc add-on to the ColecoVision. It never materialized. Dragon's Lair does finally come out on the ColecoVision, but just like don't play the NES version, don't play the ColecoVision version. <laughs> it, it's kind of ridiculous that companies kept trying to port this game to systems that just couldn't handle it at all. And for you who wish to suffer, I will have links in the show notes to the Nintendo version, the ColecoVision version, and the only version. <laughs> That's right. So they just get the project through. This is a period of time when the cost of creating an arcade game, probably somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000 for your R&D costs and your building costs and all of that. Dragon's Lair ultimately costs something like $3 million to make. That's insane for that time. <laughs> Exactly. It's insane for now. And of course, it's because of all that animation and all of this other technology and some of these dead ends that he went down with his Goldberg machine and all of that. There's just a lot of moving pieces there. They get that ColecoVision loan. Jim Pierce, the president of Cinematronics, had a Rolls Royce that he liked to drive. He sold his Rolls Royce to help raise some money. He put his wedding ring in Hawk pawn shop, you know, to... uh to raise some money, but through all of these various methods, they managed to get this game finished. And they know they have a deadline because, as I said, Astron Belt was debuted at the MOA show in America in, in 1982. Now, the game was not ready. They were just showing it. They weren't ready to take orders. But because they showed it, 
Rick Dyer and his team knew that Astron Belt was coming, and they knew they had to be first in the United States. They didn't care that Sega released it in Japan or Europe or whatever. They had to be first in the United States because they knew the first game in an arcade that showcased these more impressive graphics off of a laser disc, that would be the game everybody remembered. And nobody was going to remember the game that came second. So they worked feverishly and they got this ready to go so that they could release it by July 1983. And so it was the very first Laserdisc game released in the United States, even though it was beaten by Astron Belt internationally. They started out by testing it in two locations. One in Los Angeles, where Rick Dyer and Don Bluth were, and one in San Diego, which was the home of Cinematronics. As Rick Dyer tells the story, and this is probably true, he gets a call from the location that they have it at, from the owner, manager, whoever. Says, you've got to come out here and see this. He's like, what, what? It's like, no, just come out here and see this. So he's scared to death because the guy won't tell him. But when he gets there, what he sees is probably upwards of a hundred people all just clustered and staring at this game. Mouth drop to the floor. Exactly. Eyes dilated, glazed over, just staring in awe at what they're seeing. Now, keep in mind, this is the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Video games, graphics, you don't even have Nintendo graphics then. No. You're talking the height of video game graphics is Atari. In the home. In the home. In the arcade, it's not much better, really. It's pixel art. It's, it's probably about on par to, to what an NES could do in the arcade. Honestly, it's obviously pixelated. It's obviously not the kind of art you would expect now. Come into an arcade where you have Space Invaders, Pac-Man, early Nintendo games that are just showing in the arcade kind of graphics. Mm-hmm. You have all of that. And then off here in the corner is the Secret of Nim graphics with a night guy going forth with a big booming voice telling you what's going on. That's insane in comparison. That's like jumping to today's level of graphic back in the 80s. Exactly. It's unbelievable. It is a cartoon in video game form. And you can play it. It's not a cartoon you're just watching. It's a cartoon where you are the hero. It's astounding. Just in terms of the audiovisual, because it's got the voices like you said, it's also got music. It's got music streaming off the disc too. Real music, not bleeps and bloops, which is really all the arcade has because you don't even have FM sound modulation in arcade games yet. That doesn't come along till a couple years later in 1984. So you're talking about very primitive sound in the arcade too that's pretty much entirely bleeps and bloops like your later PC speaker. Well, not later because PC's out by this time, but like your later 1980s PC speaker kind of games. It's unbelievable, and it just has people aghast and agape. And he calls up Jim Pierce in San Diego and and tells him about this, and Jim Pierce tells him it's like that here too, because they've got the two on test, you know, in both locations. It's clear this thing's going to be huge. It costs twice as much as a standard arcade game. A standard arcade cabinet goes for maybe $2,000, $2,500 at this time. Dragon Slayer is a $4,000 product because it's got that Laserdisc player in it. It's just a more advanced thing. But it's able to do 50 cent play. People will pay 50 cents oh, around yeah. to play it. 
So that makes up for it. It, it costs twice as much, but each player is putting in twice as much. So you're breaking even to the inflation. In theory. Of course, when you get down to the gameplay of the thing, that's where you get into trouble. I always died. <laughs> I had no clue what it wanted me to do. The way the Dragon Slayer works is it's essentially a series of quick time events. They didn't call them quick time events then. And gameplay speaking, they're not really quick time events in my mind because the way I think of quick time events is there's something that you do occasionally, like you have other controls and other actions that you're doing most of the time, but then occasionally they'll ask you to press A not to die kind of thing. In this case, it was just all quick time events. The quick time events were the gameplay. You would proceed into a room and there were a bunch of different rooms and they would randomize them and you would never see all of the rooms on one playthrough and they would mix them up to try to add some replayability to it. You would get into a room, there would be some kind of hazard in the room, there would be a cue on the screen asking you to do some joystick or button presses in some kind of combination. If you did the right thing or if you did it at the right time, you would advance to the next room, to the next challenge. If you didn't do it in time or you did the wrong thing, then you would die in a grisly way. They had a lot of fun, just like the later King's Quest games. <laughs> they had a lot of fun coming up with entertaining death scenes. The, the logic being that if you're going to die all the time, you might as well have some fun with it. Now, unlike King's Quest, where some of those deaths, it's like, why are you bothering? Because this is a puzzle-solving game, so why are you bothering with killing us all the time? This is a game where death had to be a part of it. It's an arcade game. <laughs> so the way you regulate play is you have players die a lot. That's just the way it is. You can die three times, then you have to put in more quarters. Exactly. And, you know, put them in two quarters at a time, because 50 cent play. <laughs> yep. So this gameplay was relatively simplistic, and eventually, even though you die a lot to get there, eventually you would know how every room worked. You would know the correct sequence of events for every room. Well, there's no replayability at that point. It's not like a Space Invaders or a Donkey Kong or a Pac-Man where you can keep score chasing, that you have the score being the thing that drives you forward. And it's not like some of the other action games that come later that do have an ending screen, but it at least takes you a long time to get to that ending screen and the game can play out in multiple ways depending on who you shoot first or who you beat up first. It can have a lot of variation and interest to it, even though you know what the end result's going to be. There's one correct sequence per move to do, and it's just doing a couple of joystick jerks and button presses. It's not doing anything very physically or intellectually stimulating. Eventually, you'll have it all memorized, and you've already seen the cartoon. There's really no need to play through it all again at 50 cents a pop just to see the whole cartoon again. It really doesn't have that much replay value. And even worse, it's using a Laserdisc player that is not meant for the rigors of the arcade. These early machines, they were using Pioneer machines, these early machines did not take any kind of jostling well. Even today, if you jostle a, a player while it's trying to read something, you could end up knocking the laser out of alignment or getting some kind of error in the reading or getting the disc scratched, etc. We had PlayStation 2s that had this issue. Yes, indeed. 
But back then, they were even more fragile and even more delicate. And so players bang on cabinets when they're frustrated. Oh, yeah. It just happens. And that's the kind of thing that could knock it out of commission. Or when the games were transported and delivered, they could be damaged just when they're being taken off the truck. Especially since these delivery people weren't used to having to be that careful because these video games, they're PC boards, they're solid state. There's very few delicate parts. So, yeah, you have to make sure you're not dropping it from a great height. But, you know, if you've got it in a crate, you can, you can bounce that crate around a bit while you're getting it off the truck. And, and it's not going to do any harm to that video game because it's wrapped so that it's somewhat protected. And it's all solid state components, so there's nothing to get out of alignment or break or whatever. So you can literally drop it off the back of the truck, you know, from a short height while you're delivering it. And your arcade game's going to be fine. Well, not Dragon's Lair. That's going to knock your laser all out of alignment and ruin it. Maybe irreparably. Maybe damage or scratch the disc. Right. A lot of these games would literally fail right out of the box because they were jostled in delivery. Dragon's Lair is a game that ended up with an out-of-order sign on it in many arcades far more often than it ended up with people playing it. Also, they couldn't make as many as they wanted because nobody expected Laserdisc players to take off like this because your biggest order may be that General Electric wants some laser discs for training, you know, to show training videos to their employees. So General Electric orders, you know, 500 laser disc players for training. Well, you're talking about a game now that has orders for thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Pioneer's not ready to manufacture thousands upon thousands upon thousands of laser disc players. Nope. Rick Dyer obviously is going to be biased, but Rick Dyer figures. If he could have caught the moment, he thinks he could have sold over 100,000 Dragon's Lair caps just on the, the novelty appeal of them. They only sell, I think, about 8,000 by the end of 1983, in part because they can't make as many as they would like. Now, 8,000 sounds small compared to Pac-Man, 96,000, Miss Pac-Man, 115,000, Asteroids, 70,000, Space Invaders, 60,000. But remember, this is late 1983. We talked about the arcade in our crash episodes and how in the middle of 1982, arcade video game sales just stopped. Mm-hmm. They hit a wall. You could barely sell anything anymore. You got 8,000 units selling in a dead, we do not like video games market. And you could have probably sold more if you could have just manufactured the darn things. So this was a huge hit. This was a huge hit, despite the problems, despite the playability problems, the durability problems, etc. In the moment, after its first release, and in that half year, July, December, 83, this was a huge hit. It was seen as the savior of the arcade industry. Because now, finally, after videos not selling, videos not selling, videos not selling, here is something that is not only selling well, but feels like a great leap forward in technology, something that one can build on in order to fix the market. So, of course, everyone jumps in in the latter part of 83 and the beginning of 84 and starts building their own Laserdisc games. Only a few of them are successful. There's essentially three different paths you can take with Laserdisc games. There's probably more, but there are three different paths that people actually took. And they had varying degrees of success with that. One is what Dragon Slayer did. 
you can make an interactive cartoon and make you do certain commands at certain times in order to keep the movie going. Or if you fail to do so, load in another movie that shows you dying horribly. This was the approach of Dragon's Lair. It was also the approach of Stern Electronics, which released a game called Cliffhanger that used footage from the anime Lupin. They got permission to use footage from that. And so they had all these crazy car chases and other action things where you've occasionally had to move the joystick around to keep the chase going, avoid cars, and and some of the other activities too. Car chase is just one example of what was going on in that game. So again, it it felt like you were directing a cartoon since it was a lot of high-speed action. In some ways, it it may have even felt a little more participatory and a little more adrenaline rushy than the Dragon's Lair could at some time. But at the end of the day, it's still just quick-time events. Another approach you could do was the Astron Belt approach. Astron Belt was, we're doing a traditional game, and we're using some traditional sprite-based graphics, but we are streaming the background and streaming some of the enemies off of the Laserdisc. Astron Belt, it turns out, doesn't do that very well, and so it kind of sinks in the marketplace. Finally comes out in the U.S. through Bally, because as we just talked about in our Sega episodes, Bally, after Dragon Slayer, realized they needed a Laserdisc game, and they had nothing in development. Sega was an arcade company that was really starting to hurt after the arcade downturn in 1982. So it was a perfect match. Bally bought the arcade assets of Sega, not the entire company, just the arcade assets, and got the rights to Sega's Laserdisc games to release in the United States. So they released Astron Belt. It doesn't do so well. The game that does do well with this kind of gameplay is one called Mach 3 by the company Millstar. Millstar is this company that used to be Gottlieb. D. Gottlieb and Company is a pinball manufacturer that goes way back to 1927. It was bought out by Columbia Pictures in 1976, and eventually, around 81 or 82, they decided that since Gottlieb was associated with pinball, and really, just like everybody else, they were starting to get more and more into video games, they wanted a new name for this new focus, and so they called it Millstar for God only knows what reason. <laughs> Millstar created a game called Mach 3, like I said, that did a much better job of integrating video and sprites. First of all, the enemies were also sprites, unlike an Astron Belt where they were part of the film. That does sound like a much better thing because then you can at least register, hey, you're actually hitting that. Exactly. It was a flying and shooting game. You would have enemies coming at you that you had to shoot, then you would also have ground targets that you would have to bomb. And the ground targets are obviously part of the film strip. But unlike an Astron Belt, what they did is they created these little markers in the uh, sprite-based graphics that would show up on the screen and show you where you were supposed to bomb. And you had a targeting reticule so you could line up with those indicators and do your bombing that way. And so... You would drop bombs on things. Obviously, the ground wouldn't change. It wasn't a destructible environment because it's a film strip. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's not literally a film strip because it's on a laser disc, but you know. Video. What I mean. it's, it's video. It wouldn't actually destroy the train or anything, but you could at least have targets on the ground be highlighted and you could tell when you hit them because you would have those graphical indicators show up. Obviously, we'll, we'll show all of this in the show notes. So that worked a lot well. And Mach 3 was initially a massive hit. 
They sold something like 6,000 units, which again, for the time, was not very bad, and for a Laserdisc game, was very good. Uh, it was very well received, but then they overproduced it because they kept producing it into the period when Laserdisc started not doing so well again. So that ended up blowing up in their faces because they just made too many of them. If they had stopped at 6,000 units, they'd have had a massive hit, but they kept going. <laughs> and so that was kind of unfortunate. But it definitely, in terms of the shooting action style, traditional video games, that is one of the better examples of those because it did a much better job of integrating sprites and video than, say, Astron Belt did. The third approach that you can do when doing this is similar to the second approach in that you're combining sprite stuff and streaming stuff. But instead of going out and filming something or using film, you actually do computer-generated graphics for your background. But it's just you stream them off the disc. And Williams did this approach in a game called Star Rider that was released in 1984. It was a first-person racing game, kind of a futuristic racing game. And they had these very elaborate three-dimensional racetracks for you to maneuver along. These were the kind of graphics that you could never fit into ROM on the arcade systems of the day. You just wouldn't have had enough memory. But they got around that by having the background stream directly off the Laserdisc. And so this was just kind of more dodging obstacles and, and driving around kind of thing rather than giving you stuff to shoot at or whatever. So they could generate this background and then have you stay on the track, essentially, as, as you navigate it. So those are kind of the three ways that you could do things. And there were some variations or some combinations thereof. Data East got into Laserdisc games fairly heavily. The first one they released was one called Vegas Battle that was terrible. We can throw that in the show notes, too. It was one of these shooting games where you're shooting sprites against a streamed background. And the gameplay is just kind of bleh. They tried to liven it up story-wise by inserting very brief animated sequences in between the action. This is kind of sort of the first time you have cutscenes in a video game, but not really. I mean, I wouldn't really call these cutscenes because all it basically was is you shot at things for a while and then you would suddenly switch over to like a 10 second, I mean, a really short little animated thing. And then you'd go back to shooting things again. I mean, it really wasn't introducing narrative into video games in any kind of realistic way. But in a way, they were kind of the first animated cutscenes in a video game. That game was terrible. Then they did a better one called Cobra Command that was more of this animated and you're doing quick time movements and you're doing various joystick movements and whatnot to avoid hitting things and keep the chase going and whatnot. So that was that was a much better game. Again, it kind of showed how you could make a kind of action-packed Laserdisc game, even with just quick time movements. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's still a limited amount of control over what's going on on the screen. So those are kind of the approaches that were used, but at the end of the day, none of it really went very well for anybody. Well, it really seems that what has gone on is it seems to be really a brief flare of 83 to 84, barely a year. That's exactly correct. And it's for the reasons I hinted at with the Dragon's Lair problems. The machines are breaking down all the time. 
it's hard to get enough machines out into the marketplace. The gameplay all becomes very samey. The arcade market is already falling apart, and these are very expensive machines. If Dragon's Lair had managed to actually revive arcade spaces, then that kind of cost could be justified. But quite frankly, the machines were too expensive for a collapsing market, and so even the games that were slightly more interesting weren't going to be enough to turn the market around, and a game like Dragon's Lair was never going to turn the market around, because once you memorized all the patterns, you were done with it. There was nothing else to do with it. These games were out of service a lot. They were fragile. They were more expensive. 50-cent machines, and even the shooting games that were slightly better shooting games, there was no great advantage once the novelty wore off to spending 50 cents to shoot stuff as opposed to spending a quarter to shoot stuff. I can get twice the shooting with quarters. Right. So it was something that was never really going to work. I mean, the companies invested in it really heavily. Universal, which is not the movie studio. We've talked about this before. There was a video game producer called Universal that had nothing to do with the movie studio at all. Japanese company. They even went so far as to invest in a system hardware. We talked about system hardware in our arcades after the crash episode where you made it easy to switch out different games within the same piece of hardware. That system hardware went nowhere. I'm not even sure they ended up releasing more than two or three games before the Laserdisc thing all collapsed. Everybody tried it. Some companies like Stern and Cinematronics invested heavily in it. Even Atari released one Laserdisc game called Firefox that was based on the movie of the same name that starred Clint Eastwood, which again was a shooting game. It looked a lot like Afterburner, except you were flying against backgrounds that were film, some drawn from the movie, some shot during the movie specifically for the game, and Clint Eastwood recorded some extra dialogue and whatnot. So there was this sense with games like Firefox that maybe you would have a merging of Hollywood and video games, something like the Sillywood thing that happened in the early 90s. Certain filmmakers like Steven Spielberg, who himself was a huge gamer, and George Lucas really started paying attention to this. George Lucas asked his Lucasfilm Games division, which already existed by this time, to really look into this. Again, once Laserdisc games failed to reach critical mass, once the whole thing fizzled and turned out to be a fad, the movie makers lost interest. I mean, the movie makers never got involved. But if it had been successful, the whole Sillywood nonsense may have happened even earlier than it actually did. So yeah, throw in expensive machines that never work with repetitive gameplay that gets old after the novelty of it wears off then you've got a market that falls apart. The kind of last chapter here is that Rick Dyer, after doing Dragon's Lair and doing Space Ace, which was a similar game, except in space, done with Don Bluth again, tried to bring this technology home. He created a system called the Halcyon that was released in 1985 as a home system. As we know from our Crash episodes, 1985 was not the period of time to try releasing any kind of new home video game system, especially one as expensive as a Laserdisc system. So that fizzled entirely and basically took Rick Dyer's company down with it. That's basically the end of the line for Laserdiscs in video games. Obviously, its little cousin, the Compact Disc, introduced in 1982, takes off, and eventually Optical Media supplants cartridges in the home, and optical media becomes an important part of how the video game industry grew. But in its original gigantic laser video disc form, 
not so much. Not durable enough. Can't take the abuse. Looks really pretty, but gameplay is just not there. And you can have the most prettiest thing ever, but if you don't have a good game... That's right, but it remains an interesting footnote. It's something that's still interesting to talk about because for that brief period of time, it was seen as perhaps the savior of the arcade, and for that brief period of time, it captured the collective imagination of video game players. Oh, certainly. I mean, I can imagine the first time I saw Dragon's Lair compared that to anything else in the arcade. Like, wow, look at that. I wonder how you play that. How do you move? How do you do this? It's almost like when you're looking at it, you think the game can do so much more than it actually can. I'm not even sure I even recognized when it would actually let me do an input to do anything. Mm-hmm. And that was most of my problems. Like, I have no clue what I am supposed to do or when. Especially as a small kid, you got no clue. Sure. You die and you got like a couple of other things. And it was always cool to find that one kid who actually understood how the game played and could go past the death spot you started at. Sure. Or intentionally died because apparently, like as I said before, in Dragon's Lair, you can die three times. Well, the first time you die, you get thrown somewhere else, but it's always the same somewhere else. I remember like one kid just intentionally died the first time, went to the second one and started off from there and then died somewhere. But Yeah, and I never played Dragon's Lair, but I do remember seeing it and kind of, and this was probably in the early 1990s, I'm pretty sure. Even then, it was amazing to look at. Definitely. There was no gameplay substance behind it, but even in the early 90s, the graphics on that thing, the the full-blown cartoon, were just so far ahead of what could be done by anything that it still looked amazing. Still looks amazing today. It's because of the really high-quality animation, the kind of animation that was done for Dragon's Lair, for Secret of Nim, is such a step above anything else we were seeing at that age. Absolutely. And again, that's because Don Bluth was so dedicated to the craft and keeping the Disney craft alive. Obviously, starting with Little Mermaid in 1989, Disney finally realized that they needed to do the same thing and up their game again. But in that fallow period between Walt Disney's death and kind of Little Mermaid in 1989, they're just, from an animation perspective, Disney just was not at the top of its game anymore. And so some of the stuff Don Bluth was doing was was just kind of stunning. So that's that's Laserdisc games. That's That's pretty much all there is to say about that. So what are we going to talk about next time, Jeff? I don't know. How about... You. Uh, me. Me. You. Us. Oh, my. We're going to bore you about us. <laughs> yes, everyone's favorite subject that nobody else wants to hear a thing about themselves. But not just about us. No, no. Our plan is to discuss a little bit about ourselves and our experiences with video games and bring in a little bit of history as we discuss that. This is going to be a sort of fun, lighthearted episode before we do something that we did last year. A three-part epic, but this time it won't be The Crash. It'll be on something else. But to get there, 
we must reminisce. That's right. And hopefully that will bring back some good memories for all of you as well as you think back to the games that inspired you when you were a kid and, and made you lifelong fans of this hobby. So hopefully uh, it's it's something that, that we can all enjoy a little bit, just a, a break from, from all of this hardcore history that goes on at They Create Worlds. So we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Mm-hmm.